the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing... Chris Williams, engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Addison Brevere. He is the author of Saints Becoming More Than Christians. It's a really fascinating look at the use of the word that uh, uh, certainly outnumbers the uses of the word Christian, and we'll talk with Addison about that in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also take a quick look at how the impeachment will work moving forward. Tomorrow it begins in earnest in the Senate with sort of some administrative decision-making, but that will stretch on into two weeks Several months? Who knows? We'll uh, tell you a little bit about what to expect uh, as that process begins in the Senate, presided over by the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, this weekend, Mission Connection was a rousing success. Thoroughly enjoyed the speakers, and uh, I'm so grateful for folks like Bill McLeod, the Board of Directors for Mission Connection, Rolling Hills Community Church that made the facility available. It was a challenging and inspiring weekend. And I know that uh, as I was doing my Bible study this morning, I thought a lot about what so many of the speakers had to say about what it means to be a follower of Christ and uh, to be attentive to God's call on your life. It's, it was just an extraordinary weekend. I thoroughly enjoyed spending it with uh, many of you who were part of Mission Connection. I would encourage you to mark your calendars next year. It's just about this same time every year, but you don't have to wait a year. There are connection events that take place throughout the calendar year, and you can go to missionconnection.com for more details on that if you'd like to go deeper in your faith. So uh, kudos to the Mission Connection uh, staff, board, volunteers, uh, a wonderful, wonderful event. I want to take a quick look at uh, some of the day's headlines. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell reportedly is close to finalizing a rule that would allow the president's team to move to dismiss the articles of impeachment in the Senate quickly after some evidence has been presented as a sort of safety valve in case Democrats try to drag out the trial for weeks. The discussions came as Texas GOP Senator Ted Cruz on uh, Sunday said that the trial could extend to six to eight weeks or even longer if the Senate decided to hear from additional witnesses a prospect that could interfere with the imminent presidential primary contests as Senator Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, likely would get pulled off the campaign trail. In fact, uh, they are required to be there through these hearings. McConnell um, wouldn't be obligated to publicize the final version of his resolution setting the parameters of the impeachment trial until Tuesday. That's tomorrow. But top Republicans have said they support affording uh, President Trump the opportunity to cut the trial short. Republican Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, for example, told Axios uh, he would be very, very surprised if McConnell's resolution didn't include that kind of kill switch. We'll just have to wait and see. And the New York Times announced late Sunday that its editorial board was breaking from convention and will endorse two candidates for president in 2020, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Essentially, 
uh, diluting e- each and making, um, I should say both, and making each le- of less significance. The paper endorsement uh, has traditionally been one of the most coveted for Democratic politicians, and they've only ever, at least in modern history, endorsed Democratic politicians. The editorial board wrote that in choosing these two candidates, it recognizes that both radical and realist models should be considered. Now, these two do not <laughs> represent the same line of thinking, so it's a rather peculiar uh, decision on the part of the New York Times. Some suggest they were sending a message to uh, Bernie Sanders more than anything else. You can interpret for yourself what you think it means. Uh, maybe the lack of courage is as simple as that. Well, the San Francisco 49ers defeated, defeated rather the Green Bay Packers 37-20 to on Sunday to win the NFC Championship, setting up a showdown with Kansas City Chiefs at Super Bowl LIV. I haven't done the math yet. Uh, that's 50, 50, 54. Chris Williams confirms it's 54. There you go. Uh, at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida, next month for a chance to claim the title of NFL champions. Well, there you have it. It was... Um, uh, on back uh, on the back rather of Raheem Mostert, who that the 49ers were able to defeat the Packers. Mostert had a breakout uh, performance, 220 rushing yards on 29 carries with four rushing touchdowns. Had the opportunity to watch it. Kansas City won the uh, game behind the brilliant performance of Patrick Mahomes, one of my favorites. The star quarterback was 23 for 35 with 293 passing yards, three touchdown passes, and a rushing touchdown. Congratulations to the two teams who will meet face-to-face in the Super Bowl. Well, the Supreme Court is going to hear faithless electors case. We'll tell you more about that, what it means, and when that's happening. Also, the school lunch guidelines have been rolled back on Michelle Obama's birthday. Ouch. GOP senators are considering the kill switch. We'll talk more in detail about that option. Should the impeachment trial spiral out of control? Chuck Schumer's 1999 letter about impeachment comes back to bite him, in which he says the exact opposite of what he's saying now. And the Supreme Court again agrees to consider Obamacare contraceptive mandate exemptions. Federal court has dismissed a teenager's climate change case against the government. And the Puerto Rico governor under, is under fire after emergency aid found sitting in a warehouse had not been distributed as needed. Mexican troops are blocking U.S.-bound caravan travelers who are once again growing in numbers. And the Women's March took place on Saturday. You probably didn't know it. Attendance was way down again. On this day in history, 2017, Donald J. Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States, pledging emphatically to empower America's forgotten men and women. On this day in history, 1937, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes the first chief executive to be inaugurated on the 20th of January instead of March the 4th, when they used to do it. And on this day in 1942, Nazi officials hold the notorious Wannsee Conference, during which they arrive at their final solution— it calls for exterminating Europe's Jews. On this day in history, 1981, Iran releases 52 Americans it held hostage for 444 days, minutes after the presidency, presidency passes from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan. On this day in history, 1986, the United States observes the first federal holiday in honor of slain civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., 
And 2001, George Walker Bush becomes America's 43rd president after one of the most turbulent elections in U.S. history. And on this day in 2009, Barack Obama is sworn in as the nation's 44th as well as first African-American president. Finally, in 2014, American missionary Kenneth Bay, jailed in North Korea for more than a year, appears before reporters in Pyongyang and appeals to the U.S. government to do its best to secure his release. Bay and fellow American Matthew Miller would be freed in November of 2014, some 10 months later. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about what day it is, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It became a federal holiday when it was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan in 1983. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Addison Bevere. He's the author of Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. We'll also talk about how impeachment works from this point moving forward, as the Senate will take up, at least from an administrative point of view, uh, some of the decision-making and the beginning of their portion of this process. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. Day became a federal law when it was signed into a law by President Ronald Reagan back in 1983. As Americans celebrate MLK Day, it's important to recognize the contributions of King and the tradition of ideas he espoused that put him in the pantheon of great Americans. The federal holiday may have been created in 1983, but the true origin of his legacy reaches back to 1776. Some of the loudest voices in today's discourse insist that America's origin is fundamentally flawed and broken. The New York Times recently launched 1619 Project, for instance, and it aims to reframe America's past to convince Americans that slavery and racism are the true heart of our civilization. Well, the project's headline essay declare that our founders, our founding rather, ideas of liberty and equality were false. One man who didn't think our founding ideals were false was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. While the study of slavery is essentially to understand America's past, it's also vital to recognize just how much of a connection King had to the founding fathers and the ideas that they animated. Those ideas were born in the context of a world in which tyranny was the norm. Political rule by and for most people was no more than an experiment. Much like Frederick Douglass, King didn't shy away from criticizing America for failing to uphold the self-evident truths cited in its founding documents. In particular, he followed a thread of ideas stemming from Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence through Abraham Lincoln and finally to his own time when the equal rights of black Americans like myself were being denied by much of the country. King was not so small-minded as to reject the ideas of the Declaration because its writer, a slave owner, failed to live up to them. Instead, he embraced those ideas as fundamentally correct and recognized how they were the key to bringing about a new birth of freedom in his own time. In my time, in his mountaintop speech of 1968, given the day before his assassination, King said the black men conducting sit-ins at segregated lunch counters were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to these great um, wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. In his more famed I Have a Dream speech, he called the Declaration of Independence the most eloquent and unequivocal expression of the dignity of man ever set forth in a socio-political document. He recognized the power and the truth encapsulated in that document, which laid the foundation for ending not only slavery, but laws that treated people unequally based on their skin color. Even in the most tumultuous moments of racial tension in the late 60s, 
According to historian Peter Myers, King was deeply grateful for America itself, for its original and enduring promise and its native propensity to reform. Regardless, that's a quote, by the way, regardless of its faults, King recognized that America stood as a unique bastion of freedom in a world in which liberty and justice were rarities. He ultimately succeeded because he spoke in the natural right language, natural rights language that the American people instinctively knew to be true. His legacy is that he helped expand the founding promise of liberty and equal rights to all Americans. More than any other figure, he helped cash in that promissory note of liberty and justice for all, which the founding fathers had left. In that legacy, he stands um, with today's, um, or I should say athwart today's radicals, who wish to tear America up by its roots. As is the case with many great men, King was not without his flaws. He flirted with and even embraced failed socialistic economic ideas and fell short in his treatment of women if recent FBI documents alleging gross misbehavior are true. As with many great but complicated individuals of our past, he's worth celebrating in spite of his faults and limitations, as is America. Life, much like history, can be messy and full of wrong turns. For men, a man is fallen and imperfect. We aspire to be a shining city upon a hill, but that shining city will always appear dim in light of heaven. Even still, King had faith that the American people derived from all races and backgrounds, were attached in mind and heart to the emboldening legacy of 1776, the mystic chords of memory, as Lincoln would call it. As the late historian and political philosopher Harry Jaffa wrote of King, he dreamed of a day when the principles of the Declaration of Independence would be fully realized, not only in the institutions of American government, but in the spirit of American society. Contrast his ethos, King's ethos, to those who today deplore colorblind racism or target the founders, including the men who wrote the Declaration, for historical erasure. It would be a shame if we allow the noxious pull of identity politics to undo the work of King and of others. The American system allows us to preserve what is best about ourselves while occasionally correcting our deepest faults. King deserves enduring recognition from all Americans for his role in bringing civil rights to fruition and in some ways, more importantly, convincing the majority of Americans that racism stood in opposition to our founding and biblical principles. Our challenge today, as in King's, is to preserve and further the legacy of 1776 and the 60s and to inculcate informed patriotism among future generations so that they may have a fuller understanding of the right and wrong paths in their own time. On this, we celebrate and acknowledge the contribution of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On a less lofty note, Ken Starr, the former independent counsel who led the Whitewater investigation into then-President Bill Clinton in the mid-90s, and attorney Alan Dershowitz are going to join President Trump's impeachment defense team. Well, they've already done so. The prominent lawyers are among several attorneys added to the team as the president's impeachment trial gets underway, with proceedings kicking off um, tomorrow in earnest, although they began technically on Thursday. The team will also include former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, former federal prosecutor Robert Ray and Jane Raskin, who was part of the president's legal team during former special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe. Both Starr and Dershowitz are former um, uh, prosecutors as well. Well, the inclusion of Starr drew an immediate reaction from Monica Lewinsky, the former White House intern whose affair with Clinton eventually led to his impeachment before he was acquitted in a Senate trial. This is definitely an are you kidding me moment. She had more words to add to that. I would not repeat. Uh, she tweeted, I should say. 
Um, it was reported earlier this week that the White House counsel Pat Cipollone will take the lead on the president's defense team in the Senate trial, along with Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow. Cipollone, um, dis- depu- I should say, deputies Michael Pupura and uh, Patrick Philbin will also work on that team. Now, Dershowitz confirmed his role in a series of tweets on Friday last, saying that he would present oral arguments at the Senate trial to address the constitutional arguments against impeachment and removal. He s- believes the conduct that's being cited does not rise to the level of constitutional impeachment. While Professor Dershowitz is nonpartisan when it comes to the Constitution, he opposed the impeachment of President Bill Clinton and voted for Hillary Clinton. He believes the issues at stake go to the heart of our enduring Constitution, he said in another tweet. Trump was impeached by the House last month on articles alleging abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. They relate to Trump's urging Ukraine to launch investigations into Uh, The 2016 election and former President uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Trump has denied the allegations, saying the phone call was, in quotes, perfect. Well, the White House says that it's looking for a fair process that affords Trump the right to say uh, it says to uh, were denied him rather in the House inquiry. And despite that apparent expectation, the president in recent days has publicly pushed for the case to be outright dismissed and for the Senate to bypass a trial completely. Many believe that this uh, that by the Senate giving credence to the trial based on the no evidence, no crime, uh, read the transcripts, no pressure impeachment hoax rather than an outright dismissal. It gives the partisan Democrat witch hunt credibility that it otherwise does not have. Trump tweeted on Sunday, fall ending uh, by saying, I agree. Well, there will be a trial of some sort, the length of which uh, we do not know whether or not there will be subpoenas of documents. We do not know whether or not witnesses will be called. We do not know. We'll just have to wait and see. We'll talk later in the program about uh, how the impeachment works from this point forward, what to watch for, who's in charge, and how it plays out, at least in technical terms. So stay with us for more details on that. Meanwhile, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Today's program brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. President Trump's legal team on Saturday issued a full-throttle defense to the articles of impeachment, uh, refuting the substance and process of the changes while accusing House Democrats of engaging in a dangerous attack on the right of the American people to freely choose their president saying this is a brazen and unlawful attempt to overturn the results of the 2016 election and interfere with the 2020 election now just months away. The legal filing said the highly partisan and reckless obsession they wrote with impeaching the president began the day he was inaugurated and continues to this day. The articles of impeachment are constitutionally invalid on their face. The seven page filing continued. Then the uh, team uh, called the impeachment dangerous perversion of the Constitution in a lengthier filing. Uh, The legal team called the House impeachment a dangerous perversion in the brief filed this morning, the head of this um, week's arguments to be held on the Senate floor. The 110-page filing claimed that the two articles, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, do not amount to impeachable offenses and that the Democrat-led House inquiry was not a quest for truth. Instead, House Democrats were determined from the outset to find some way, any way, to corrupt the extraordinary power of impeachment for use as a political tool to overturn the results of the 2016 election and to interfere in 2020. Uh, Trump's brief said all of that is a dangerous perversion of the Constitution that the Senate should swiftly and roundly condemn. 
Well, House impeachment managers filed their own brief over the weekend. The 111-page filing included lengthy allegations that Trump abused the power of the presidency by soliciting foreign election interference and using military aid to Ukraine. And a White House visit for Ukrainian President Zelensky to pressure Ukraine into announcing that they were investigating Trump's political rivals. The House's prosecution team said in its filing, the Constitution provides a remedy when the president commits such serious abuses of his office, impeachment and removal. And in a message directly aimed at senators who will serve as jurors in the trial, the House Democrats wrote, the Senate must use that remedy now to safeguard the 2020 U.S. election, protect our constitutional form of government and eliminate the threat that the president poses to America's national security. Well, the Democrat impeachment managers spent Monday morning preparing for the trial, touring the Senate chambers. Tuesday, we'll see the beginning of proceedings on the Senate floor with a debate over rules to be followed by opening arguments. Well, the Republican senator said the four senators running for president should recuse themselves from the president's impeachment trial. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee said the 2020 candidates should step back from the process because they have unparalleled political interest in removing Trump from office. Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota and Michael Bennett of Colorado are likely to leave the campaign trail as they hear the case against the president who was impeached for his conduct toward Ukraine. To participate in this trial would be a failure of the oath they took to be an impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. The presidential ambitions prohibit their ability to view this trial through an objective lens, Blackburn said in a statement. Will it have an impact? No, it will not. Well, who is Lev Parnas? Uh, This is a name that uh, became quite well known recently as he is now the left's new hero and associate of former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, one of the president's personal lawyers, is the left's new hero going into the Senate impeachment trial. He is a native of Ukraine named Lev Parnas. And he and his business partner were arrested in October as they appeared to try to leave the country while under federal indictment for violating campaign finance laws. Well, Parnas gave a condemning interview on Wednesday night on MSNBC with personality uh, Rachel Maddow, in which he threw gasoline on the president's upcoming impeachment trial over issues involving Ukraine. President Trump knew exactly what was going on, Parnes, 49, told Maddow. He was aware of all my movements. I wouldn't uh, do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the president, end quote. Well, before his arrest, he boasted to the media that he knew of information the government of Ukraine had on former Vice President Joe Biden, which he said U.S. officials were neglecting. Now Democrats are eager to work Parnes and the interview into Trump's impeachment trial. Whether or not they're successful, again, we'll just have to wait to see. Well, last night, uh, or a few nights ago, uh, Lev Parnas interview um, couldn't have made it more clear. The Senate must hear from firsthand witnesses and demand the White House turn over documents related to the withholding of military aid from Ukraine. Senator Kamala Harris tweeted, now the trial has already taken place. The case is now to be argued before the Senate. So what is being advocated is a second trial. Trump dismissed the matter Thursday while acknowledging that he and Parnas may have had their photograph taken together. He's trying probably to make a deal for himself. I don't even know who the man is, Trump told reporters. I guess he attended fundraisers, so I took a picture with him. I'm in a room. I take pictures with people. I take thousands and thousands of pictures with people all the time. I don't know him. Perhaps he's a fine man. Perhaps he's not. Well, some of the the key things to know about Mr. Parnas as we uh, find out whether or not he is going to play a role in the impeachment proceedings moving forward, he and um, Igor Furman 
um, his partner, who also is charged with campaign finance violations. Both were born in the former Soviet Union and are naturalized U.S. citizens. Parnas was born in 72 in Odessa, located in today's southwestern Ukraine. At the time, it was still part of the Soviet Union. His family brought him to Detroit at the age of three. They later moved to Brooklyn. He attended Brooklyn College and Baruch College uh, before going to work in real estate. At Giuliani's behest, he and Furman traveled to Ukraine in 2018 to investigate conflicts by Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, related to Burisma Holdings, a Ukrainian energy company widely described as corrupt. Parnas and Furman were also in Ukraine to find information to counter findings in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of possible cooperation between the Trump campaign in Moscow to influence the 2016 presidential election. Giuliani, also a former federal prosecutor in New York, acted as the president's personal attorney during the Mueller report. The investigation eventually determined that Russians interfered in the election campaign, but found no evidence that either Trump or his campaign conspired with them. Then there were uh, criminal charges. The White House dismissed what uh, Parnas had to say on MSNBC, saying these allegations are being uh, made by a man who is currently out on bail for federal crimes and is desperate to reduce his exposure to prison. White House uh, Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said in a formal statement. A federal grand jury in Southern District of New York indicted Parnas and Furman on charges of making $325,000 in illegal campaign contributions to a pro-Trump political action committee. Prosecutors say the two men tried to hide the sources of the donations while working with foreign nationals who had Russian roots to send money into Nevada politics. The pair also are charged with trying to lobby members of Congress on behalf of the Ukrainian government. They were arrested, taken into custody in Dulles International Airport near Washington, D.C., while holding one-way tickets to exit the country. The arrest came after the two were called to appear before three House committees in the early portion of the Trump impeachment inquiry that was held behind closed doors. Regarding the charges against him, Parnes was quoted as saying, we didn't have the right accounts opened up. I had no idea of the rules and regulations. I made it very clear to the super PAC the donation was from Global Energy Producers. Global Energy Producers is a company started by Parnes and Furman. Well, in the early 90s, uh, Parnes worked at King's Highway Realty in Brooklyn and sold housing for the Trump organization, the Trump family business in New York. He left New York in 95 for Florida, where he worked for several real estate companies before starting his own. Parnes Holdings. He eventually went into business with Furman, who reportedly was born in 66. The two men established a limited liability company, Global Energy Producers, that which prosecutors allege was for purposes of concealing the source of their campaign contributions. Well, the Miami Herald reported that Parnes left a long trail of debts in Florida and beyond. He reportedly was sued numerous times for unpaid debts and was evicted from several properties. One litigant uh, told the Miami newspaper that Parnes was a con man. The Washington law firm run by Joseph D. Genova and Victoria Tonzing hired him in uh, 2019 as an interpreter, uh, interpreter rather, in its representation of Ukrainian oligarch uh, Furtash, who was charged by the United States in 2014 of, of corruption and was being held in Vienna. Bertosh, a lawyer, paid a million dollars to Parnes. Well, two others indicted in the alleged scheme were David uh, Correa of Florida and Audrey, whose last name I will not attempt to mispronounce, of California, who established an insurance company with Parnes in Boca Raton, Florida, called Fraud Guarantee, which is not a great name, Fraud Guarantee. Are you guaranteeing that you will 
defraud your client? I don't I don't know. Anyway, uh, Parnes reportedly selected the name to clean up his Google search uh, results, which consistently uh, included the word fraud. Well, the National Legal and Policy Center, a conservative watchdog group based in Falls Church, Virginia, looked into some of the information that he promoted and determined that he was disreputable. Uh, well before the uh, airport arrest, uh, Anderson said, uh, the one who uh, did the background check for the National Legal and Policy Center, said he warned other reporters to ignore information from him. So his credibility has been uh, questioned uh, long before this most recent public showing. If the Democrats take anything from him, they will end up getting burnt, Anderson told the Daily Signal. We've never used any information from him. I'm surprised Democrats are going anywhere near him. Well, finally, House Democrats, ahead of sending the two articles of impeachment Wednesday to the Senate, released copies of text messages between Parnes and Robert Hyde, a former Republican candidate for the House from Connecticut. The messages appear to say that former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, who Trump recalled from her last post, had been under surveillance. Ivanovich, who testified during House impeachment hearings, remains employed by the State Department with no charge, no change rather, in pay. House Foreign Affairs Chairman Elliot Engel said the text message suggested a possible risk to Ivanovich's security. A screenshot of the handwritten note to Giuliani from Parnes provided to House Democrats said the priority was to get Zelensky to announce that Biden's case will be investigated. So that's a little bit of the background of Mr. Parnes and whether or not he will play a significant role in events moving forward is not altogether clear. He certainly has a credibility problem. But it seems at this point, at least some Democrats believe he should be heard from. Um, but that comes with the, an asterisk and warnings attached to it. So we'll see how or if he plays a role in all of this. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk with Addison Bevere. He's the author of Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. The book is published by Ravel, and he'll join us uh, about a quarter after the hour in the second hour of the program. We'll also outline how the impeachment will work uh, Tuesday moving forward, what to watch for, who's in charge, and how it plays out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York Times has created a spectacle around one of the stodgiest features of presidential primary season, the newspaper endorsement. Well, in past years, the time it simply splashed the name of the chosen one across its editorial page, always a Democrat, a week or so before the Iowa caucuses with a few uh, bromides about experience and temperament. In the last two competitive Democratic uh, primaries, the Times endorsed the establishment favorite Hillary Clinton, revealing both the Times' own establishment leanings and the depths of its influence on actual voters. Well, the editorial board sat down for lengthy interviews with the candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Andrew Yang, Tom Steyer, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, who dropped out of the race the day the interview was published, and even Deval Patrick, but not Michael Bloomberg, who skipped the interview rather than be asked about the uh, uh, policing policies he oversaw as mayor of New York City. Well, on Sunday, the editorial page undermined the whole charade and really the whole point of an endorsement by choosing two diametrically opposed candidates, Warren and Klobuchar. While nearly everybody else in the world of democratic politics seem to have made up their minds, the board needs more time to choose between a more radical approach to fixing America's many ills, represented by Warren, and a more conventional one, represented by Klobuchar. Well, the Times editorial page was 
has taken its reputation for careful, sober decision-making to the point of paralysis, calling into question all the ostensible reasons for opening up the endorsement process in the first place. Well, in announcing the change earlier this month, Kathy Kingsbury, the deputy editor of the editorial page, said the board aimed to make it our most uh, transparent endorsement process to date. Transparency has become something of a theme for the Times, with executive editor Dean Backwit. Uh, or something like that, uh, telling Meet the Press last year that it was crucial for shoring up the institution's credibility in an era of fake news. They need to keep working on it, by the way. We went through generations of just assuming everybody believed us, he said. What I think we're going to have to get very aggressive at is to be really transparent, to assume nothing, and to make sure people know where we are. Of course, we don't know where they are with two endorsements, but how do we um, do our work to show our work more aggressively? Well, there are, of course, commercial considerations too. the endorsement, which was announced on the weekly, was meant to drum up interest in the show that's largely been met with indifference. Taking readers behind the scenes has been a wildly successful formula for the podcast, The Daily, in the name of building trust with readers, The Times reporters have to perform journalism to millions of subscribers peering into the glass offices of the newspaper's 8th Avenue high-rise, and it's not enough to break a story about, say, Trump's decision to take out uh, Qasem Soleimani. Now you also have to talk with Brian Barbaro for 30 minutes about it as he gives you the behind-the-scenes story. So they've endorsed, endorsed rather two candidates. Of course, uh, those who are voting in the Democrat primaries only get one vote to cast, so I'm not sure how helpful that whole process will be. For them, a federal judge on Friday sentenced former Representative Chris Collins to 26 months in prison after he pled guilty to insider trading charges on uh, one day after resigning from Congress last year. The 69 year old spoke for about 15 minutes in court on Friday, growing emotional as he apologized to his family and constituents. I stand here today as a disgraced former member of Congress, he said. My life has been shattered. End quote. Well, the Department of Justice had recommended Collins receive the maximum sentence for his conviction on one count of conspiring to commit uh, securities fraud. But U.S. District Court Judge uh, Vernon Broderick sentenced Collins to a lesser sentence than the guidelines of 46 to 57 months. The former congressman was ordered to report to the federal prison in Pensacola, Florida, on the 17th of March. Collins' attorney had uh, bid for a sentence of probation with a term of home confinement, community service, and a substantial fine. They cited his um, contrition, advanced age, he's 69, charitable works, and a low chance that he would commit any more crimes. Society as a whole will gain no benefit from incarcerating a 69-year-old husband, father, and grandfather, the sentencing memo said. This is a sad and tragic day for Chris and his family, defense attorney Jonathan Barr said. He stands before you humbled, penitent, and remorseful. Federal investigators said that Collins provided non-public information about biotechnology company Innate, where he sat on the board to his son Cameron, tipping him off in June of 2017 that a drug company was uh, working on uh, a drug the company had been working on, rather, failed a clinical trial so that Cameron could sell his shares before the stock price went down. Collins was at a congressional picnic at the White House when he learned the news, according to prosecutors. Well, a little a little closer to home, Oregon Governor Kate Brown has big plans for the upcoming 2020 legislative session that begins the 3rd of February. This is the short year. And although it's a short session lasting only 35 days, the governor has high hopes lawmakers will pass issues she says are critical to the state's future. That includes a cap and trade bill that failed in the last legislative session, a new version crafted by a legislative committee. 
seeks to avoid a walkout that helped derail the last bill by adding concessions for rural Oregon. We'll see how that goes. Passing cap and trade, a bill aimed at reducing fossil fuel emissions through a cap on uh, carbon, is one of the governor's top legislative priorities. She told uh, KGW's Laurel Porter during this week's taping of Straight Talk that she's cautiously optimistic that lawmakers will pass a bill this time around. The leader of the Senate Republicans, Senator Herman um, Bart Seiger, or something very like that, says he thinks the issues uh, should go to voters and nothing is off the table, including another walkout. The governor said that would be unfortunate, but it might be unavoidable. Uh, the governor said executive action isn't out of the question. She said she prefers the legislature. Uh, they're working collaboratively to pass a cap and trade bill. But if lawmakers can't get it done, she says she'll take what she's called appropriate action. Another priority is finding a way to better manage Oregon's forests to help prevent future wildfires. The governor said the devastation uh, bushfires have caused in Australia demonstrates why Oregon needs to invest in wildfire preparedness. Uh, Brown said Oregon got a buy last year with a relatively quiet fire year, but she says that's unlikely in the coming years. She's asking lawmakers this session to invest $200 million as part of a $4 million long-term plan to prevent Oregon wildfires. The governor also discussed the restart of a project to build a new I-5 bridge, changes in the legislature to prevent sexual harassment, building more affordable housing, and her plan to help Oregonians prepare for the big one an expected earthquake along the Cascadia subduction zone. Meanwhile, thousands of Second Amendment supporters uh, carrying long firearms and, <clears throat> excuse me, wearing stickers reading Guns Save Lives descended upon Virginia's capital in Redmond on Monday for a widely publicized rally to protest a recent uh, push by state Democrats for comprehensive gun control. All kinds of wild uh, warnings were issued Uh, But uh, it was a peaceful demonstration. The rally comes as the city has been on high alert for days following threats of violence, leading to road closures as well as a ban on firearms on the Capitol, at the Capitol rather, and on its grounds. Yet, as of midday Monday, evening Monday, the demonstrations were peaceful. The throngs who gathered in Richmond on Monday were heard in large groups reciting the Second Amendment in unison, while others broke out in chants. Uh, We will not comply. When one speaker asked the crowd if they were ready for gun control, the crowd yelled back no. Other speakers like um, Republican delegate John McGuire III used the event to drum up support for the president who tweeted days earlier, your Second Amendment is under very serious attack in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. The president of the Virginia Citizens Defense League, the nonprofit organizer of the rally, said that uh, it wasn't the pro-gun groups who had been uh, stoking fears of potential violence at the event. It's the Democrats, Phil Van Cleve said. It's almost like they want something to happen. It sounds crazy, but they keep doing it. And you have to start wondering uh, if that's intentional. Well, thankfully, it went off without any violent uh, incidents as uh, was thought to be the case. How much time do I have there? Oh, I still got three minutes. Well, on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear uh, cases that hold significant implications for the Electoral College that's, uh, and states' rights. During the 2016 presidential election, four Electoral College electors, one from Colorado and three from Washington, cast votes for candidates who did not win their state's popular vote. 
In Colorado, the elector cast a vote for John Cash instead of Hillary Clinton. And in Washington, three electors cast their votes for Colin Powell rather than Clinton. Both the states of Colorado and Washington are among approximately 30 states that require electoral college electors to cast their votes in concurrence with their respective states' popular vote. Well, following the votes of the so-called faithless electors, both states responded. Colorado voided the electors' vote, and Washington fined the electors. Electors responded by suing their respective states. The Colorado elector won, but the Washington State Supreme Court ruled against the electors and upheld the fine. Well, the question that SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, will answer is whether state requirements mandating that electors cast their vote with a state's popular vote is constitutional. The ramifications of the court's ruling could derail the left's effort to circumvent the Electoral College via the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. The effort by several blue states to throw their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of the state's popular vote. Ironically, 13 of the 16 states that have thus far joined the pact, if you will, um, uh, of the movement, have laws requiring the electoral college electors to vote for their respective state's popular vote winners. So they didn't change their laws. They're just saying, just violate the law. Well, the Supreme Court will likely hear the cases in April Uh, with a ruling expected in June. So this should be decided well before the 2020 election. Very interesting case. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but when we come back, we'll talk about another case. The March 2020 Supreme Court will, uh, or I should say in March 2020, the Supreme Court's going to rule on the constitutionality of a Louisiana law, an abortion law, which requires that physicians doing abortions have admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles of the clinic. We'll tell you more about that case that could upset Roe versus Wade. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Addison Bevere. He is the author of Saints Becoming More Than Christians. The book is published by Ravel, and uh, he'll join us uh, shortly. We're winding our way through some. Oh, also, I should mention in the last segment of the program today, we're going to talk about uh, how impeachment works moving forward. Uh, the at least kind of the administrative elements of it will start tomorrow in the Senate uh, in the afternoon because the chief justice of the Supreme Court who presides over all of this has some voting to do in the morning. And that's uh, that will begin the process in the Senate. So we'll talk a little bit about how it works, what to watch for, who's in charge, how it plays out and so on. So you'll be prepared. Well, in March of 2020, the Supreme Court is going to rule on the constitutionality of a Louisiana abortion law, that's relatively new, that requires that physicians doing abortions have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. Well, under the leadership of House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, an amicus brief, friend of the court brief, supporting the law was just filed. It was signed by 207 members of Congress, 39 senators and 168 House members. Well, a press release from Scalise summarizes the arguments made and lists a number of conservative organizations supporting the brief as well, one of which um, is uh, Star Parker's organization, and she, which is the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. And she writes that what makes this filing particularly interesting is not just the sheer volume of congressional signatories, almost 40 percent of uh, Senate and House combined, 
It also uh, it's also the fact that it goes further than just arguing support for the constitutionality of the Louisiana law to suggest that the widespread confusion regarding abortion law ties directly to the confusing basic premise under which abortion was found constitutional. In 1973, in Roe v. Wade and the 1992 Planned Parenthood v. Casey decisions. Now, we are almost at the anniversary of the infamous Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions that started it all, at least on a a national scale. Oregon had already legalized abortion before that decision. But the uh, brief urges the... um, a Supreme Court to cast new scrutiny on these two landmark decisions that have defined the abortion landscape for uh, many, many years. Well, since 1973, well, asking the Supreme Court to reconsider Roe versus Wade is provocative, to say the least, but it's also courageous and on target. How can we possibly function as a nation when an issue as critical as abortion defies consensus as it does its uh, uh, as to its constitutional pedigree as well as its morality? And yet it stands. We'll be talking more about that this week. But this is the case that could upset Roe versus Wade. Now, do I believe the Supreme Court is going to consider uh, their request and revisit Roe versus Wade? I think it's highly unlikely, but it does at least represent an approach um, in which questions are being raised um, that could ultimately lead to the larger question being asked. Meanwhile, in a rather disappointing story that LifeSite uh, published, 44, 44 faculty members from a Catholic university in Canada have demanded that the school apologize for allowing campus ministry to show the wildly successful pro-life film Unplanned. They're requiring the uh, the university to apologize for allowing it to be seen. Now, it seemed to me that college and university campuses were the bastion of uh, uh, of ideas where uh, one hones one's thinking, you're challenged, and so on. That apparently is no longer the case. Uh, anyway, Unplanned, as you might recall, is a movie about the life of a former Texas Planned Parenthood Center manager, Abby Johnson, And she recounts how she quit her job in 2009 after having a conversion experience and renouncing abortion. Its debut across Canada, as well as the United States and worldwide, was met with protests, including two Canadian cinema owners receiving death threats uh, for just showing the film. Well, the film was screened at King's University College on the 9th of this month. Well, the demand for an apology came in a letter from faculty members, um, this past Wednesday and was addressed to college principal David Malloy. It described what the faculty called the furor and fear expressed by the school community over the fact that the pro-life film was screened on campus. Now, they weren't required to see it, uh, but the fact that it was being seen um, was just more than they could tolerate. The public endorsement of an anti-abortion stance at King's University College by the director of campus ministry is of great concern to the viability of our institution as we work to recruit and maintain excellent students, staff and faculty. So uh, apparently in order to be characterized as excellent staff, students and faculty, you must embrace abortion at a Catholic university. I must admit I'm puzzled. In response, Malloy said the school does not have any official position on abortion, despite the fact that it claims to be a Catholic institution. In his statement, Malloy makes clear that King's official position, but not that of its campus ministry, is indifferent. Wow, indifferent. And ultimately not full supportive of pro-life cause. I think that summarizes the problem in our culture. Anyway, the presentation of the film and the belief of life beginning at conception is the stance of campus ministry and not of King's as a whole. 
King's employees, faculty, and students do not need to prescribe to the tenants of the Catholic Church. King's does not have a position on abortion, Malloy said in the uh, statement. Well, LifeSite uh, reached out to the diocese of London Bishop Ronald Fabro, um, but hadn't received a response. Uh, they inquired uh, why a Catholic post-secondary institution associated with the diocese is not pro-life and does not follow church teaching about the grave evil of abortion. Well, despite, uh, despite not receiving a response from the Diocese of London, they did receive an email comment from Father Michael Bachard, pastor and chaplain for King's University Campus Ministry. And this is what he said. Campus Ministry supports without reservation the sanctity of life from conception until natural death, he said. The movie screening last week was part of the Veritas series of for faith and culture and was attended by students, staff and members of the broader community. Following the film, we had a challenging but necessary conversation where individuals were with varying points of view were allowed the opportunity to express their thoughts on the movie and on the complex realities surrounding abortion. I am grateful to work in an institution that supports the Catholic intellectual tradition and the need to have critical conversation about uncomfortable truths. Now, doesn't that describe what you would expect a liberal arts university, an institution of higher learning, the position they would take on a controversial issue like abortion and particularly on a uh, Catholic university campus? But faculty members in their letter demanded an apology from the father as well, stating he used his influence to promote the screening of the film. Well, I'll leave it at that. But again, uh, just another example of the status of our culture and how desperately we need Jesus. I'll just leave it at that. Well, 11 U.S. service members were flown out of Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq and treated for concussion symptoms after Iran's rocket attack targeting two Iraqi military bases earlier this month. We had not known that. It took some time, apparently, to determine that there were some injuries, uh, secondary injuries, if you will. The president and U.S. officials have said earlier that no Americans were killed or injured, but apparently... Uh, concussions were the uh, uh, the result. Several U.S. troops were treated for concussion symptoms from the blasts and are still being assessed. And a standard procedure, all personnel in the vicinity of a blast were screened for traumatic brain injury, if deemed appropriate, uh, are transported to higher levels of care. So an update on whether or not they were injuries to the members of the U.S. military. Apparently 11 were um, injured, service members injured in those events that took place um, some days ago. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Addison Bevere, author of Saints Becoming More Than Christians. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says the Bible uses the word Christian to describe followers of Jesus a grand total of three times. But there's another identifier that fills the pages of the New Testament, a word we've mistakenly reserved for the halo-wearing elite, losing something profound in the process. That word is saints. Wrapped in this ancient word is a divine invitation to discover who God created you to be and to awaken to the life you were meant to know. Well, using scripture and stories from his own experience, Addison Bevere, he makes a compelling case that the life you desire is found in the mystery of this sacred identity. If you want to exchange lifeless religion for the wonder of following Jesus, this book will spur you onward 
in your journey. Well, Addison Bevere is COO of Messenger International, an organization that impacts millions of people in over 150 countries through its various initiatives and the co-founder of SonsAndDaughters.tv. He joins us today to talk about his book, Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. Addison Bevere, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thank you so much for having me on the line. It's an honor. This is really interesting because we do refer to ourselves almost exclusively um, as um, as Christian. I know in the African-American church, it's less uncommon to refer to one another sure. as saints. But this is a word that we do tend to shy away from. Maybe we should begin by defining the word saints in the context of we who are followers of Christ are referred to it in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at the New Testament, you just mentioned this, it's used all over the place. And it's primarily used by the Apostle Paul. And you have to think about who was Paul writing to? Who was his audience? Because language is everything, and language is specific for its audience. And Paul was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to the people who didn't belong. He was writing to the quote-unquote unholy ones. And he was saying, hey, you're a saint. To the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome. And he would open his letters with this proclamation of identity, and he was essentially calling them holy ones. And in the, in the purest sense, that's what a saint is. A saint is a holy one. But not, not in the way that we think of holiness today. The, that, that idea of holiness had a very different connotation back then. And so it, it was a lot more meaningful to them. Today, the word saints, and I'm not sure if this is uh, the way the church has allowed the word to evolve or it's the culture, but to use sure. the word saint and to apply it to oneself seems self-righteous, like we we think more highly of ourselves than we yeah. ought, or it's, it suggests that we uh, are somehow a step above everyone else. In the right. 21st century, how should we understand the word saints as it's used in Scripture that applies to us in order that we might better understand the life that God intends for us? Yeah. So there's a lot of tension that comes with the word saint because it is calling us into something that's beyond what we are right now. But the reality is like, all of us who follow Jesus were called to be saints. And to be a saint is actually to become profoundly human. It's to be in touch with what is going on in our world today. When people think of saints, they think of people who kind of lost touch with the world. They live detached from, from the human struggle. But to become a saint is to dive into the messiness of our humanity because we have a vision of where God is taking this world. And that's, and that's what a saint is. A saint is someone who is a soul on tiptoe. They, they look beyond what is because they have a vision of what could be. And they realize that God is inviting all of us on a personal and individual basis in addition to the corporate expression of the church to look at those intersections of relationship and to see those opportunities to reveal heaven on earth. Because that's, that's what a saint is. A saint is someone who's in tune with God's kingdom, and they merge the worlds of what is and what will be because they realize that is the promise. That is the promise that he's making all things new. And if we look at these, these prophetic promises in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 11.9 and Habakkuk 2.14, we see this idea of the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. Mm. So a saint realizes, like, okay, there's no such thing as a person or a space that's off limits. Like God is redeeming, he's reclaiming, he has fought for this entire world. That's the big idea of John 3.16, like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we as the saints, we're the people who personalize that message and realize this isn't, isn't just an abstract idea 
that belongs to the religious elite. This is something that every single one of us are called into. And I think one of the reasons why, Georgine, why this has such a bad connotation is people have used the word saint to fuel and feed this like snobby elitism mm-hmm. that's so ugly in religion to be like, oh no, you guys actually don't belong. Um, there's only a few of us who are holy enough, who are worthy enough to be called a saint. But Paul deconstructs that idea so beautifully with the way he begins his letters with this statement of identity. And if you look at the book of Acts, you see this depiction of the early church struggling to figure out, okay, what does it actually mean for us to fulfill the Great Commission? What does it mean for us to go into all the world and declare this good news that that God is reconciling the earth to him? Like, what, like what does that actually mean? And in that struggle, you see this idea of the disciples having to learn to go to the people that they had marginalized, to go to the people that they had called common and unholy and profane, to go into spaces and places that they wouldn't otherwise go and reclaim those spaces, reclaim those people by sharing the gospel. Mm. It seems that the word is applied to us as followers of Christ, but it says a great deal more about him and the work that he is accomplishing in us when it's applied to those of us who take seriously um, our relationship with him. You know, you've actually nailed it, because it's really not about us. You're, you're 100% right. It's not about us. It's not about our status. If anything, Georgina, it's about us being able to get over ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think it's about, I think it's about us like laying our opinion of ourselves down at the cross and saying, look, I don't understand why you call me Holy One. I don't understand why you see so much potential in me. I don't understand why you sent your son to die on a cross. Like, I, I don't get this conceptually. Like, I don't really get this. But I'm going to embrace what you speak over me. And as I embrace what you speak over me, I'm going to watch your wonder, your light, your goodness reveal, be revealed in my world. Mm. Now, this may seem like an obvious question, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond. What motivated you to write about this subject? I mean, most of us are perfectly content to uh, live <laughs> under the title of Christian, but you're calling us yeah. to something more profound. What inspired you to write on this subject? I'll share two things. There there are a lot of ideas and a lot of experiences that I've had, but I'll share two things. The first one, and this has happened to me so many times, but I'll I'll share one specific incident. I was on a plane, and um, I was sitting next to this lady. And when I get on a plane, to be honest with you, I'm not a big talker. I'm pretty (laughs) introverted. I like to just sit down and be in my own world, pull, pull out my book, put my headphones on. But my mama taught me, like, look, you have to at least acknowledge the existence of the person sitting two inches away from you. Like, that's just rude. And so I did that on this flight, and then I gave her the cue, like, okay, now I'm in my own world. But she wasn't having it. Like, she wanted to talk. So an hour and a half later, I have heard her life story. Uh, and she, she leans in, and she shared some really intimate things with me. She leans in, and she goes, so what religious practice do you follow? Now, I knew... Well, two things. One, she broke a rule. You're not supposed to talk about religion or politics with strangers, and (laughs) she did. The second thing, I knew, based on what she had shared with me, I knew that she was not a fan of Christians, and I knew that she was not a fan of Christianity. And so here, here I was just sitting on the plane, squirming in my seat, being like, how in the world do I answer her? Because, Georgine, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I love Jesus. I want to spend the rest of my life following in the footsteps of the one person who got this whole humanity thing right. Like, I want to learn his ways. I want to wrestle with with the mission and purpose represented in his life. But I'm ashamed of what has been known, like, come to be known as a as a cultural Christian. 
the stigmas, the stereotypes. Like if you just Google the word, like do the phrase Christians are, you're going to find words like hypocritical, judgmental, um, things that aren't very nice. And, and so I'm sitting on the plane and I'm feeling that tension. And it's a, it's a tension that we largely feel living in this quote-unquote post-Christian world. Mm-hmm. That's a part of it. The other part is about five years ago, four or five years ago, I was reading this book, and the author made a casual reference to a saint. And I, when I, before this, when I thought of a saint, I thought of stained glass windows, I thought of dead people, I thought of Catholicism, I thought of a prefix that goes before someone's first name if they lived a really good life. Like, that was my idea of a saint. But then I, I read this definition, and it described a saint as someone who practices and participates in the mystery of the final day. And it, and it just, like, made me pause. I was like, what? Like, what does that even mean to practice and participate in the mystery of the final day? And I did a deep dive. And those two things, along with a lot of other things that have happened in my own journey, um, led to what is now the Saints book. So that's, that's the short answer. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Addison Bevere. He's the author of Saints Becoming More Than Christians. Back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Addison Bevere. He's the author of Saints Becoming More Than Christians. And if you're wondering, yes, he is related to those Beveres. <laughs> uh, just before the break, you were telling us about your airplane ride sitting next to someone, and you were trying to figure out a way <laughs> to respond to her question about what faith uh, or tradition or religion you followed. Um, and we're reminded of a study that you had done on the, the subject of saints. So how did you ultimately answer her? You know, what I, what I said is I said I was a follower of Jesus. That's what I said. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, Georgine, when I said that, walls went up. Hmm. It's sad, but walls, walls went up. And I've been able to speak to things in her life um, in a profound way. I knew God put me on that plane for a reason. And it was sad that when I when I just used that word, when I said, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, there so many negative ideas um, came into the mix. And, and so that's a challenge. I mean, I've seen it in so many of my friends. Um, it's not just millennials, too. It's, it's, it's all the generations. It's getting increasingly more difficult to have conversations about who Jesus is, about what it is to follow Jesus in our world today because of these negative ideas um, that have attached themselves to, to what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus. Why do you think Christian culture as a whole doesn't identify with the term uh, saint? And, and what's the difference between referring to uh, oneself or uh, fellow believers as saints as opposed to Christian? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we're, we're called both yeah. I mean, in Scripture. We're called both. We're called to be Christians. We're called to be saints. There's nothing wrong with the word Christian it, literally means a little Christ. It's, it's not a bad word. It's not a bad identifier. But because of how it's been used, it has been cheapened. Uh, and as far as the word saint goes, we're all called to be saints, too. And sadly, um, this, this religious elitism took a corner on, on the word saints, and we reserved it for dead people. We reserved it for the halo wearing. We reserved it for a certain class of people. And, and what's so sad about that for me, Georgine, is because a saint is someone who deconstructs the barriers between the sacred and secular. They reclaim the mundane. And if you look back at the alignment, like mid-1700s, what happened is we, we as a church, we forfeited a lot of space 
to the quote-unquote secular world, things like the arts, science, industry, economics, stuff like that. We're like, okay, that's secular, and we're going to keep our institution, we're going to keep our prayer groups, our, you know, our Sunday services, and that's holier, that's sacred. And, and what has happened is people, they, they live these, um, these lives of duplicity or hypocrisy because they feel like they have to be one person in the quote-unquote sacred space and another person in the secular space. And God is actually calling us to merge those spaces, to break them down, because the big idea is there's nothing off limits. So what we do on Monday is just as holy, is just as significant to God as what we do on Sunday. And and so when when people look at like a life of purpose, I had I had this I was in Staples actually last week, and I was getting my TSA pre-check um, interview done. And the lady who was doing the interview, she asked, she's like, "What do you do for work?" And I told her, and she's like, "Man, it must be so cool to to have a life of significance." She's like, "All I do is work at Staples." And I just looked at her and I said, that's the great lie of human existence. And she, she just like looked at me like, huh? And I, like, you're going to have to explain what you mean by that. And then it was one of those things where I didn't realize what was coming out of my mouth until after it came out of my mouth. And I was like, oh gosh, like I, I have no idea who this person is. I have no idea what her religious background is or her philosophical back, background. I'm like, I'm going to have to explain quite a bit. And I just told her, I said, look, your life is significant because it happens at the intersection of relationship. Everything meaningful in this life happens at the intersection of relationship. And if we really understand the way God kingdom, God's kingdom works, we understand that it happens at the intersection of relationship. And I told her, I said, the fact that you're here serving people day in and day out, like you are given moments to, to intersect in the lives of these people, to reach out to them, to speak hope and, and life and goodness. And she started seeing it, and she just looked at me, and she's like, thank you. That, that, made, that made my week. But we, over, we overcomplicate. We honestly, like, we overcomplicate this stuff. And if you look at Ephesians 4, talking about the church, quote-unquote, the church, fivefold ministry, what is the purpose of the church? It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So I hate the terms full-time ministry, part-time ministry. I hate that because the reality is we're all called to be ministers. That's right. Wherever, wherever we're called to, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a CFO or a scientist or an engineer, a mechanic, wh- whatever God's called us to do, however he's gifted our lives, like, we're called to live lives of significance. We're called to live lives of service. We're called to reveal heaven in practical, personal, tangible ways in our everyday lives. And it's sad that we've reduced impact, we've reduced significance to these abstract ideas that really don't have any bearing in the here and now or in the mundane. And what the enemy of our soul has done is he stripped our lives of meaning. He places meaning in the future. Like, hey, one day when you accomplish X, Y, and Z, or when you get that degree, or when you get married, you're going to live a life of significance. Or he's like, oh, remember back then, a long time ago, that you did something meaningful or worthwhile, but he's terrified of us realizing that this moment is pregnant with purpose because Mm -hmm. he knows that everything happens in the present. Everything meaningful happens in the present. And saints are people, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, wake up. He's talking about resurrection reality. He's talking about the holiness of life. He's talking about the, the mystery of God's new creation invading our life now and also what's to come. And he's like, wake up. 
wake up, wake up, see, see what's around you, see this world through God's eyes. And, and so the, the way I look at saints, saints are people who wake up in this lifetime. They wake up to the beauty, the wonder, the purpose, the, the awesomeness of life in this lifetime instead of just waiting until the next one. You write that as we yield to the magnitude of this new way of being, losing our smallness in God's largeness, we will become people who participate in the mystery of life. Explain what you mean by that, losing our smallness in God's largeness. You've given us a glimpse of that, uh, but talk a bit more about what that uh, not only uh, means, but what that life is like. Yeah, absolutely. So A.W. Tozer, he once wrote that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. And I think he's actually understating the truth. I think a low view of God is the cause of every lesser evil, every evil in our world. And in many ways, we've spent so much time reducing God to something that we can control, to something that we can confine, to something that we can manipulate and master. But the big idea is God's transforming us into his image. It's not the other way around. And so when, when our idea of God is this, small person who's essentially the personification of what we like best about ourselves, Hmm. we won't see his power in our lives. Like we create God in our own image and then we wonder why this God isn't making us something greater than what we are. And, and I, I see this, I see this, especially amongst younger people where they're like, your God, your quote unquote God, your quote unquote gospel is too small for our big world. It's too small for this modern world. But the reality is, Georgine, God is not too small. Our idea of God is too small. Our idea of the gospel is too small. And you see this in the gospels, the way Jesus interacted with the religious, the way Jesus interacted with his disciples. He was always stretching their idea of who God is, what God is doing, what that means for their lives. He was always reaching out and extending um, this message of hope and reconciliation and redemption to people who just didn't belong, people who really shouldn't have been a part of the equation. And if we, as, as the people of God today, if we're going to recover a sense of mission that energizes our lives, that gives us the kind of purpose and meaning and community that we crave, we're going to have to stop recreating God into our own image mm. and, and encounter the God of Scripture as He actually is, especially when that makes us feel uncomfortable, especially when that gets us outside our comfort zones, because that's where He moves. That's where he shows himself. There's so much more in your book than our time permits us to delve into, but the title of the book is Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. If you'd like to to purchase the book, or for that matter, to follow uh, Addison Bevere, you can do that at addisonbevere.com. Uh, he is involved in a number of significant things, as well as an author. I thank you so much for the time to talk with us today, and uh, I just hope that uh, your book is well-read and uh, received among the saints uh, across the globe. Thank you so much, Georgina. It was an honor to be on here. Thank you so much. Again, Addison Bevere, son of John and Lisa Bevere, by the way. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a moment and uh, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow we'll talk with Trillia Newbell. She's the author of Sacred Endurance, Finding Grace and Faith, 
from a lasting faith. So she'll join us. So we're also going to talk with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll take a look back over 2019 and forward. And as you might recall, the uh, Oregon legislature has a short session coming up. We'll find out what's happening there. The March for Life, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which of course is sadly coming up and much, much more. Lois Anderson will also join us on tomorrow's program. I should also give you a heads up on Thursday. Cross International will join us for their annual Radiothon. So that's coming up on Thursday. Well, the impeachment uh, begins in earnest on the Senate side uh, tomorrow. Now, it's mostly administrative, but the process will begin. So what do you watch for? Who's in charge? How does it play out? Well, the chief justice, seven high profile Democratic prosecutors, a heavy hitting legal defense team and 100 senators are all play a critical role in reaching a verdict on the impeachment charges against President Trump live on national television in the coming weeks beginning tomorrow. The third impeachment trial in the history of the United States is underway and the crux of it begins tomorrow afternoon when the Senate reconvenes after the long weekend. Now, it begins tomorrow afternoon. Afternoon, and that's Eastern time because the chief justice is uh, has to cast some votes uh, at the Supreme Court before making his way over to the Senate where he will preside. Well, here's a guide on some of the things to um, look forward to, and we probably won't have time to go over all of it, but here's at least a primer. After formally opening Thursday, the Senate impeachment trial began in earnest or will begin on Tuesday afternoon. During the impeachment trial, the Senate's going to be in session every day except for Sunday, which is not necessarily a helpful thing for Democrats who are sitting on the Senate but would like to win the Democrat party nomination for president. Majority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer released a decorum guide telling senators they are expected to be in attendance at all times during the proceedings and that they are not allowed to have phones or other electronics during the trial. Now, that's one difference from the Bill Clinton impeachment proceedings. Cell phones were not an issue at that time. So they have to have them um, uh, and other electronics uh, turned off, if you will. Uh, They're also not allowed to speak during the proceedings. Once things get underway tomorrow, McConnell is likely to force a vote on trial rules modeled after the Clinton impeachment trial. Now, those rules would allow 24 hours for the House impeachment managers to make their case and 24 hours for Trump's defense team to respond, something we didn't see on the House side, followed by 16 hours of written questions submitted by senators asked through Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, who will preside over the Senate in place of Vice President Mike Pence. Each day of the trial might last 12 hours, so it could um, it could be a very long day for these senators who are required to be there. Now, one of the things I like about this format is that we're not going to see the pontificating that we so often saw in the House, where there was really no question. It was just an opportunity to take advantage of FaceTime and say what uh, one wanted to say. One Democratic source panned the idea of 12-hour days, saying such long trial blocks would hide the president misconduct. Now, my guess is if they said they were going to be six-hour days, they would say such uh, short hours would block the president's misconduct. So I'm not sure satisfaction is possible under these circumstances. But the uh, Clinton trial model puts um, puts off decisions on witnesses or additional documents until after both sides have had the chance to make their case and senators have had the opportunity to ask their questions. So any witness or further documents likely won't be subpoenaed until next week, if at all. Then senators will be able to make debate and act on a variety of motions, including a motion to dismiss the impeachment altogether, motions to subpoena witnesses and documents or to move to closing arguments. 
Well, tomorrow is likely to be taken up by debates and votes on rules before Democrats make their arguments, which will take place most likely on Wednesday and Thursday, covering a 24-hour period. The president's legal team is expected to get its turn to present its defense Friday and Saturday. Now, if the Senate agrees to allow either side to call witnesses under the Clinton rules, they'll first be uh, deposed before the body decides whether to have these uh, testimony as an official part of the trial. Once the witness and evidence process is complete, the Senate will vote individually on the two articles of impeachment against President Trump. Now, because the way the proceeding is set up, there's no set amount of time that the trial will last. It could be shortened by the House managers or Trump defense taking less than their allotted 24 hours, a lack of questions from senators or even a dismissal. It could also be extended by requests for additional witnesses and documents or parliamentary antics and delay tactics. So it could go anywhere from two weeks to uh, several months. Mitch McConnell is likely to try to move the trial quickly, and a senior administration source doubts that the Trump legal team will use all 24 of its hours for its counter arguments. Now, Republicans have a procedural upper hand uh, because it only takes 51 votes to make decisions during the trial, and uh, the chief justice will likely defer any rules to a vote. Now, expectations are that the entire trial will last approximately two weeks, but again, that could change dramatically one way or the other. So some of the curveballs that you might uh, look for. First, there are the senator's questions. There are no real content limits on the, sen- the uh, senator's queries during the 16 hours that they can ask written questions to the impeachment managers and the defense. Now, again, they are not speaking directly to them. These are written questions that are submitted to the chief justice. Now, that means members of the GOP could put the impeachment managers, particularly Representative Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, on the spot. Schiff is the lead impeachment manager. He's been uh, criticized by Republicans for what they allege as coordination between his office and the Ukraine whistleblower. Now, conversely, there's been uh, accusation that there's been coordination between Mitch McConnell and the White House. So, again, nobody's happy pretty much about anything. Now, Schiff also repeatedly thwarted Republican efforts to have witnesses answer questions that uh, could have revealed the whistleblower's identity in depositions and hearings. So he did not permit every question submitted by Republicans to be asked or answered. Republicans could also ask questions about why the House delayed transmitting the impeachment articles and try to cast the president's impeachment as a predetermined outcome by asking managers about many Democrats' support for impeachment before the Ukraine scandal even happened. Also, Democratic senators could ask the president's defense team about topics, including the Mueller report or the recent GAO report that indicated the administration broke the law by withholding Ukrainian aid or at least postponing. And then there are the questions over the witnesses. It's still not clear whether or not witnesses will be subpoenaed. But moderate Senator Susan Collins of Maine previously said she was working with a fairly small group of GOP senators to ensure that witnesses can be called. Because Republicans hold 53 seats in the Senate, it would uh, take four GOP senators to defect and bring witnesses, assuming Roberts abstains from breaking any ties. Senator Ted Cruz suggested witness reciprocity, meaning if Democrats call one, Republicans can call another. Some Republicans are interested in hearing from uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Specifically, he indicated that he would appear if subpoenaed. Democrats have also floated the names of Office of Management and Budget uh, Director Mick Mulvaney, whose office directed the Ukraine aid to be withheld, OMB Associate Director of National Security Programs Michael Duffy and Robert Blair 
a Mulvaney aide. So there's a lot that could happen. Now, some Republicans have said they'd like to hear from Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, who Trump was asking the Ukrainian uh, president to investigate. They've also mentioned uh, Mr. Schiff himself as a potential fact witness because of his office's contact with the whistleblower. The Senate may also opt to subpoena documents. And again, that would add uh, time to this uh, whole process. Um, the defections on certain votes are also a strong possibility, along with uh, Susan Collins. Senator Mitt Romney uh, has indicated he would like to hear additional witnesses. And uh, additionally, Senator Lamar Alexander, uh, again, these are Republicans, has indicated that he would uh, be open to further witnesses or documents, though he stopped short of saying uh, how he would vote. Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski out of Alaska has taken a a stance that's similar to Alexander's. Any of those senators could potentially vote to acquit Trump in the final vote, but could drag out the process. A similar uh, source rather familiar with the Senate impeachment trial uh, in December said that Republicans believe the Democrats most likely to vote to acquit are Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Both represent states that uh, went for Trump in 2016. Other Democratic senators potentially in play are Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona. Trump also carried their state. So that's uh, what will begin tomorrow and just some things to think about as the process begins in earnest in the Senate, presided over by uh, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Once again, tomorrow we'll talk with Trillia Newbel, uh, her book, Sacred Endurance. She'll join us tomorrow, along with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, looking back the year that was, 2019, from a pro-life perspective and forward to what's ahead. Thank you. Chris Williams for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.